Hey, we're starting a new series today, Criticizing Jesus. Doesn't that sound like a great message series? Just to let you know, we're not criticizing Jesus, right? We're looking at people who criticize Jesus like the, the Herodians and the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all these different people. And we're going to look at some of their criticisms. Um, and, and again, lots and lots of criticism, some from his own family. Um, and, and some of it was incredibly harsh, the criticisms that he faced. And yet he kept on teaching, kept preaching the kingdom and being obedient to God. And each one of the criticisms that we're going to look at in this series is going to give us a unique perspective on his life and his ministry. First of all, it's going to show us what his, his contemporaries thought about him. And for the most part, they were either afraid or they were angry with Jesus. Right? They were afraid of his teachings or they were angry about his teachings. You know, afraid of the consequences and what that would mean to the power structure and the, and the haves and the have-nots, or just angry that the haves might not have when everything's said and done. Second thing that we're going to get is an opportunity to learn more about Jesus from both what they criticized and then how he responded to these frightened and angry people. Because most of the people that he ran into that weren't happy with him, they were frightened or angry. And he just had this amazing way of just, everybody breathe, everybody take a breath. And that's what we'll be doing with this series is finding out how he did that. And really it's going to give us our cue as to how we deal with people how we usher them into the presence of God when they're angry and afraid of God, of what they've done, of you name it. They come into our lives, and, and we have an opportunity to usher them into the presence of God. So that's what I want to do. I want to start right where I left off last week, this image of the tabernacle. Um, as you see, again, there's a celebrant right there on the right, lower right. He has got his sacrifice. Um, He's entering, and, but this is as far as he's allowed to go. We looked at this last week. Properly prepared priests will now kind of take over for him and figuratively lead him into the presence of God. Not, not for real, not the reality, just kind of, kind of do it for him. And he, the celebrant, will know that you know, my, my life and my prayers and my concerns were brought before God. My sins were brought before God and my sins were forgiven. But the priest handled, handled everything. But in the book of Hebrews, we find that Jesus is to be the final perfect high priest. And our call is to arrange our lives, our, our house, right, in such a way as to usher folks into the presence of God by way of Jesus Christ, as foreshadowed by the tabernacle that we looked at last week. Again, why? Because we're the priesthood of believers. That's what we do. We lead people into the presence of God. That's our call. That, that's what we do. That's what the church does so when God brings someone across our paths, we know what we've got to do because we understand the tabernacle, right? The first thing we confront, we looked at this last week, is that bronze altar, the fire, right? This is the thing that got everybody frightened and, and angered, right? God's holiness and our unholiness and all of the emotions that brings up. That's the very first thing one is confronted with when one enters the tabernacle, right? And you tell them as you're ushering them into the presence of God, Jesus has paid that price. You don't have to be angry or afraid anymore. Jesus has paid that price. And as you move past that bronze altar, you see a bronze basin off onto your right, and you're reminded of how unclean we are. And you remind that person that you're ushering into the presence of God that by the blood of Christ, we are washed clean. We are made clean. And then you enter into the holy place, right, with the covering. The first thing on your left, you see the lampstand, right, the the light of God, and you tell people, you tell your friend that my Jesus 
is the light of the world. And then on the right, you've got the table of the presence, and you've got loaves of bread representing the very presence of God, and you tell your friend that my Jesus is the bread of life. And then you continue forward, and you confront the veil, and right in front of the veil is the altar of incense, and you tell your friend, this person that you're leading into the, the, the presence of God, that when we desire to be in his presence, it's like a sweet aroma rising up to meet him, and he smells at it, and he, he, he recognizes that as our desire, and he's like, yeah. You ever follow a barbecue? Well, oh, mm, yeah. And that's what God does. He, 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 right? he, he smells our desire. Kind of odd, but that's how bad he wants to be with us. We ask, and he comes, right? And then you, and then you usher them through the veil, and you tell them that the only way possible to pass through that veil was by the blood of Jesus, by his broken body on the cross, broken for them. And because of Christ's sacrifice on that Roman cross, our offenses against the holy God are removed, they're erased, and they're done away with. And we can enter into his very presence. And in this picture right here, you have the Holy of Holies, that upper left cover, the veil is in front of it. And the Holy of Holies... And again, this whole process, this whole process is fairly easy and straightforward. Right? I, just kinda, I just walked you through it. Very quick little fashion there. Fairly straightforward, easy process when the person you're ushering into the God, presence of God looks a lot like you. Right? They sound a lot like you. They, um, they vote like you. They like the same people you like. They dislike the same people you dislike. Those people are really easy to usher into the presence of God because they're, they're, they're like halfway there anyway, you know, if you really look at it. But what happens when a Matthew shows up? And everyone thinks, oh, is he coming into our church? Are they coming here? I hope they're going to the other Nazarene church. A Matthew shows up and they want the same access to a loving and generous God that you have. Or worse, what if our people are making friends and hanging out with Matthew-type people? Sparks fly, I'll tell you, that's what happens. It happens now, and it happened 2,000 years ago. Sparks fly, right? I want you to listen. This is from, we're going to be looking at chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, right? Which is essentially, this is Matthew's story. You recognize this is almost a, an autobiography, right? Matthew, in chapter 9, he's telling you, here's what happened to me, Right? Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. As Jesus went up from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, we learned a little bit about Matthew from our Saddleback friends, the Saddleback kids. Um, but I want to just show a couple more things just to remind you. He is a Jewish man, right, collaborating with the hated, occupying Roman Empire. Very much hated. Tax collectors would pay the taxes themselves and then collect kind of to be reimbursed plus expenses. <laughs> Second thing you need to know about Matthew is he's got two names. And we, we kind of just flop over this, but I, I think it's significant. He's got Matthew and he's got Levi. And those aren't, you know, one Greek name and, and, and one Semitic or Jewish name. They, they were both Jewish names. Um, what I find out, did a little digging this week, Matthew is very, very close. It was possibly a play on words in the Greek, the word, and I can't pronounce it, but it means disciple. And you get this idea that Matthew's old name, Levi which was a very, very fine Hebrew name, right? He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And we, we don't know. There are a lot of theories, and I'm not going to take any time to dig into all that right now, but Matthew is a very, very play on the word, the Greek word for disciple. But in, Mac, but in Mark and Luke, right, in, in, the, in Matthew's account, in his own account, he calls himself Matthew, but in Mark and Luke, they call him Levi. And I kind of dig, digging into that, and I thought, what well, couldn't they have come up... <laughs> Couldn't they have agreed on his name? From what I read, there, there was a certain shock value that Mark and Luke used by employing the name Levi. Basically, what they were saying to their listeners is, look, here is a Jewish man, a Jew among Jews, a Levite, and he accepted Christ too. It's like shock value, right? Just, just a little bit of shock value. So in the minds of the passing Jewish victims, of his Jewish victims, Right, was a Levite charged with collecting taxes for God's temple, but instead he's greedily over-collecting taxes for Rome. Right? So in the eyes of his passing victims, Levi, I'm going to call him Levi and Matthew, I'm going to bounce around here. Levi saw and experienced white-hot anger in the eyes of his fellow Jews. I mean, you saw it. Those boys were mad. They were upset. And I think there was a little bit of fear, too, because standing right behind Matthew, as he tells them what they owe, is this big old burly Roman centurion, right? And a little old Matthew's going, you owe me this. What are you going to say? You want to talk to my buddy or you want to pay me? <laughs> you know, so in the eyes of the people passing him, he sees hate and he sees fear, right? That is the reaction generally of people who confront Jesus, right? Fear and hate. And I think they saw the same thing in his eyes. As they looked at Matthew, they saw certain, I, I'm, maybe several different kinds of hate, maybe a, a, a self-loathing right, that Matthew had of himself. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was about. He knew what he was from. And maybe it was, maybe it was a, a hatred directed back at these people looking down their noses at him, like, how dare you call me and treat me unclean? I know how you all are. How dare you? And he's just giving it right back at him. I just get this impression. And he's got some fear in his eyes, too. He's, he knows his Jewish scriptures. He knows what he's done. And there's got to be a little bit of fear, like, what have I done with my life? What have I done? Can any of this be fixed? And then he begins here story about stories about one particular rabbi. Right? There are a lot of rabbis running around, but one particular one caught his attention. This rabbi touches unclean things and they become clean. Normally, when a person touches an unclean thing, they become unclean. But with this one rabbi, everything that he touches becomes clean. He doesn't become unclean. His cleanliness makes it clean. It, blowing people's minds. This is just unheard of. In, in the chapter before chapter 9, chapter 8, right, we have a man with leprosy being healed, an unclean man. And then a Roman centurion, unclean, right? And then he calms the sea. Understand that the sea is unclean. The sea is where all the monsters come from. The Jewish people, they're not real keen on sailing, right? They're not out surfing or doing anything like that. The sea is bad. That's where all evil came from is the sea. In fact, in the book of Revelation, what disappears? The sea. Isn't that weird? Bums me out, but whatever, okay, right? And then a demon-possessed he heals the demon-possessed. 
This rabbi was teaching about a whole new kingdom that he was ushering in, a kingdom where nobody was hated and despised, a kingdom where everybody was welcomed and valued. And as Matthew or Levi, right, as he's writing out his, what would become his gospel, right in the middle of this list of miracles, he records what might be called another miracle. And a lot of us, we miss this. We think, oh, like Matthew just tosses this little piece of discipleship into all these miracles. Because early on, but you know, up through chapter 7, is all the discipleship and all the teaching stuff. And then all of a sudden, now in chapter 8 and 9, we got some miracles. And then right plopped in the middle is, is what appears to be a message about discipleship. This is very easy to miss. This is 1 chapter 4, verse 19. Check this out. Right, right in the middle. The one miracle that I think touched Matthew's heart. Chapter 8, verse 19. Then a teacher of the law. Again, we rewrite over this. A teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever I go. And you'll notice that Jesus didn't put him down. Jesus simply told him what he told everybody. If you want to follow me, it will cost you. So it's not like he bagged on the guy or anything like that. We get that impression almost, right, that, oh, you don't even know what you're asking for. Go get out of my face. That's not how Jesus responded at all. He just reminded the man who held a very privileged position in society. Look, if you follow me, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice some things. Just understand this. And we have no idea. We, we don't know. In this, I think this is a miracle conversion. I think in this miracle conversion, Matthew or Levi saw hope for himself. The majority of the clouds, crowds that had followed Jesus were the common people, right? They were called the Ameheharas, the people of the land, the people of the earth, right? And the people of society looked down on the people of the land. These people were regularly ignored, cast off, shut out, demonized, victimized. And although the religious leaders and authorities treated Matthew, Levi, as one of them, Matthew knew he was not one of them. He was a Levite, right? And he knew this. And if a teacher of the law who also represented the old order, the Levites represented the old order, if a teacher of the law can find new life in this Jesus Christ, then maybe, maybe I have hope too. And if a teacher of the law turns to Jesus. That, that's crazy. And I think Matthew, Levi, he saw hope in this. Like, Jesus accepted him. Maybe he'll accept me and my messed up life. So when this particular rabbi walked up to Matthew one day, Matthew's response probably surprised himself, right? He got up and followed him. Matthew is so excited. He's just so excited. Again, he's been hearing about all these miracles, and the guy's standing right in front of him like, yeah, I'll follow you. So he throws a party, invites all his buddies to meet the rabbi who is more concerned with mercy and grace and forgiveness and, and, and being inclusive, right, than rules and boundaries and being set apart. But the set-apart people showed up. That's what Pharisee means. I don't know if you're aware of that. They're the set-apart people. Right? So they show up at this party. Right? You saw it in the, the cartoon a little bit earlier. And they accused Jesus of hanging out with the wrong crowd, a crowd that would effectively make him unclean and unholy. So Jesus responds, while he was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciple, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds to them. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous and not the righteous, but sinners. 
not call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, sinners who are sick in their souls, they need understanding and mercy and grace and forgiveness, right? They don't need religious ritual that does nothing but point out their failures and their shortcomings. Thank you. Right to the Pharisees, being righteous entailed keeping and remaining ceremonial clean. Ceremonially clean. That was a long word. Right, which in effect limited access to people. But Jesus' righteousness meant mercy and grace and forgiveness, and that meant opening up access to people. And the Pharisees are like, oh, no, all these people are going to come to our church. They're going to mess up everything. They're going to dirty the bathrooms. And Oh, man. Then the writer of his own story follows his own conversion with an incident, I believe, that explains correctly his understanding of what makes a righteous person. This is in verse 19. It says this, verse 14, excuse me. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the, the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? The Pharisees fasted a lot, right? You had the Day of Atonement, and you had a few others that were regulatory, but they did it every Monday and Thursday. And they made sure everybody knew about it, right? They pasted their face white, and they, everybody knew how holy they were. And John the Baptist's disciples, they were all, you know, aesthetics, and they were all into the hardcore <laughs> soldier or her life, and, right, they're eating grasshoppers, and, right, so they're all into fasting, too. Now, normally this passage is uh, interpreted as a criticism, right? Jesus' disciples are, like, lazy and careless with the law, but there's another possibility. I was reading about that this week. Strong possibility that they were sacrificing, kind of like a lot of religious people, they were sacrificing, they were doing all their stuff, but they really weren't quite sure why they were doing it, right? We in the church get to this point sometimes, we get so wrapped up in our church attendance and our prayers and our Bible study and our devotions, and we kind of forget there's a purpose behind all that, and that's to go out and, and live a life of mercy for people who need mercy, right? To extend mercy. We uh, get a little bit of separation there. Like many religious people, lots of, rituals, lots of rituals, lots of practices, but not terribly sure the purpose behind the ritual. I'll just be honest with you all. Having Dan and David, they're, they're both more experienced and more educated than me in church stuff, and so I just spend the week asking them a lot of questions. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing You probably don't need to know that. Um, all right, so they get an answer, right? Kind of operates on two different levels. On one level, the specific response uses the picture of a wedding feast and deals specifically with one type of sacrifice. You notice they're bagging on, you know, they're talking about sacrifices versus mercy and grace. One particular sacrifice, and that is fasting. So Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And that probably rang a bell with John the Baptist's disciples because John the Baptist had been taken from them. And so this, this, this clicked. This clicked with them. Interesting word here, guests of the bridegroom. This is the NIV. The original language really is the children of the bridal chamber. Children of the bride chamber. These are close friends and family that attend the couple's every wish for the whole week following the marriage ceremony. Right? We do it kind of different. We get married, and then the couple goes off like, get us out of here. In the Jewish culture, no, right? 
This couple stays, and their honeymoon is in the midst of the village, and like nobody sleeps. It's a week-long party, and the children of the bride chamber, they just shower love and gifts and care and, and they, on, on the king and queen of the week, right, the bride and the groom. And all week long, this is what the, the children of the bridal chamber do. Once-in-a-lifetime, week-long party, and everybody's invited so Jesus compares himself to the bridegroom and his disciples to the bridegroom's closest friends, right? Children of the bridal chamber. Who could be sad at a time like this, literally? This was no time for fasting, but a time of rejoicing. Now, notice what Jesus just did. I don't know if you caught it, but he changed the identity of Matthew and his friends in a single sentence. He takes them from the the Ame, Hehare, the, the people of the land, and he made them children of the bride chamber, just in one, they noticed. Oh, I know. they noticed. Right? For us, it just kind of goes, hey, whatever, but they noticed. Like, we're, we're part of that party? That's, that's pretty amazing. This is what his kingdom was all about, everyone being invited to the party of a lifetime. He then passes judgment. Jesus then passes judgment on the old way of it with its rituals and the sacrifices of which very few people were aware of why they were doing it in the first place. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Any of you who grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, torn jeans was not something that you went out and bought. (laughs) I don't understand it. But if you had a tear in your jeans, that was disgraceful, right? So you patched it, and there were several popular patches. It was either a daisy, a peace sign, or an American flag, if I recall. That that was the, that was, and what I found out is I I would patch, because my parents weren't, they were teachers, and they they had way too many kids. I don't know what they were thinking. Anyway, so they would keep, they would would patch my jeans, and a little while, after a little while, I learned to sew myself, because I would put a pair of jeans on mom's sewing desk, and I would outgrow them. And so I learned to sew in middle school, you know, whatever. So I learned the the zigzaggy stitch, right, the one that grabs the patch and grabs the material. Thank you. And what I found out is that patch looked really cool for about three washings, and then all around the patch it just got even worse. And then you had to put another patch, and then pretty soon... You know, you were all, and it wasn't your knees, it always started on your rear end. I don't know how that happened, but it was just, anyway... I, I, I get this picture, right? I get this. I totally, totally, totally get that. New things, new ideas don't always mesh with old things, old ideas. And in the same way, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. And if they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. These twin parables about the patch and the wineskin raise questions about the old, the old system, and it, it wouldn't work anymore. Does it work in light of Christ? in light of grace and mercy. Little did anybody know, 35 years later, 35, about 35 years after the death of Christ, the temple's leveled, destroyed. Sacrificial system, gone. Jesus knew this. I think more importantly for us this morning, with the patch and the new wine, Jesus is pleading for flexibility. That's all he's pleading for. I don't think he's asking us to change anything. He didn't bag on anybody. Just, just, just be flexible, right? What you're seeing is new wine, so have some flexibility and accept these followers of mine and their weird ways. 
You know, I read in the news of what Christians do around the world, and sometimes I'm like, my eyebrow goes up, and, and Diane says, old man, relax. <laughs> it's, they're, they're, grumpy old man, relax. They're okay. In our day and age, when habits, they so quickly become traditions, and then traditions become pillars of faith, right? It's worth asking, so I'll just ask you all, which part of this story did you identify are you upset that the church seems to be coddling sinners these days? Or are you upset that the church doesn't extend enough mercy and grace and forgiveness to sinners? With, with which part of the story are you identifying this morning? I want to show you something interesting in closing. Kind of a note about Matthew's story. You recall the series of miracles that Matthew records right before his conversion. I showed you this, this screen right here. There were several miracles there in which unclean people become clean. And in Matthew, as he records his gospel, he records all of those, and then he includes himself. And then he includes a whole bunch more miracles dealing with unclean. This is right after, right? Two more females, unclean, sorry, get healed. Two blind men get healed in a mute. See, Matthew has a message for the church this morning and a message that's near and dear to his heart. If we want to usher our friends and family into the very presence of a loving and forgiving God, we know what to do. It's really not that difficult. Right? I walked through it in five minutes earlier. But if we want to usher any, uh, any Matthews into God's presence, then we've got to stop treating them like people of the land and start treating them like children of the bride chamber. I think that was the message that Jesus, the overriding message that Jesus wanted his disciples to know on the night before he was crucified. We're about to share communion with the people coming up that will be playing for us. Not sure if someone will be playing the piano. But on the night before Jesus was crucified, I think he showed us one last time what it would take to usher the Matthews of the world into his presence. It would take his spilt blood and his broken body. And by extension, if you want friends of yours who happen to be Matthews, and you know it, they know it, if you want to lead them into the presence of God, this, was, this had to happen first, but then If I read it correctly, you're going to have to be broken for them. You're going to have to sacrifice something. And it won't be easy. That'll, that'll tell you this is, I'm on the right track. But you'll have to be broken too. So I want to encourage us as we share this, this morning in communion that we understand that Christ, his blood was spilt for us and his body broken for us, but he now expects us to go and do the same thing for the Matthews of the world, that we would allow our blood to be spilled and our bodies broken. Because there are a lot of Matthews who believe that God wants nothing to do with them. And they stand before that brazen altar and they say, nope, not for me. And you've got to step into that gap and say, oh yeah, yeah, he's for you. He loves you. And he died for you. And I'm going to do the same thing for you. Just walk with me now. 
Let me pray. Father, your son was so clear on what he was going to be about and what we needed to be about and what it would cost him and what it would cost us. He didn't pull any punches. And Father, even to this day, we try to lessen the impact of those moves, but they can't be lessened. Father, they've got to be magnified. And so, Father, as we share in communion this morning, prepare our hearts for what, for the sacrifice that you're going to call each one of us individually to make for your kingdom, for some Matthew. Maybe you don't know that, Matthew. Maybe you do. you still got the same thing to do. So, Father, thank you for this final illustration of what your son was all about, what you're all about, what your son was all about, what your Holy Spirit is all about, what we need to be all about, being broken for broken people. In your son's precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.